0: There's always some beautiful synchronicity when I get to speak here. So I was looking at what happened on September 18th in history. And I found this piece about Anne Hutchinson, who was a religious rebel who emigrated here from the United Kingdom. And she showed up in the Massachusetts Bay Colony on this day in 1634. And she would be banished from that colony four years later. She was very controversial for her religious views that salvation could be achieved by faith alone. She was a midwife. She was a mother of 15 children. And she was a pastor. She would have gatherings at her home. And she was well-respected in the colony. She was a righteous woman and kind and helped so many uh, women as and families as a midwife. And she began to hold these meetings that were very, very well attended. And she was one of several individuals who began to stray from those strict Puritan views on Christianity. And so she was perceived, of course, as a threat to the... Mm-hmm. Church leaders. What I'm realizing is she was part of that trend that was happening pre enlightenment and through the enlightenment, really all over the world. And it's about that bypassing of the middleman dogma of the church and acknowledgement of that direct connection with God, with spirit that's available to all people regardless of beliefs or creed. And she ended up leaving Massachusetts to follow Roger Williams to Rhode Island, who also believed that individuals should be free to follow their convictions on religious matters. So, you know, I was like, "Oh, yeah. That's there's something about that that's having a resurgence right now in an evolutionary way. That we're being asked to again regard the evolutionary nature of our spirituality. The theme of direct knowing of divine will and courageously following that knowing beyond any current limiting beliefs. That's a big deal right now. And I've recently been introduced to Dr. Lisa Miller, who's done a tremendous amount of work on the neuroscience of spirituality. She's the founder of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute at Columbia University. It's the first Ivy League graduate program in spirituality and psychology. Wow. Hmm. There's a great nine minute video that was made recently by Lead with Love, a local organization. And in it, some of her work about how they're actually able to measure now that a sustained spiritual life is hugely significant to building thicker cortical matter in our brains. And the implications of that are that we have greater processing power, greater resilience, ability to withstand more stress, greater access to the experience of oneness, and to integrate our current reality around that. Remember how we always used to say, oh, we only use a tiny bit of our brain. What would happen if we were able to use more of it? Well, we're starting to see what's possible and significance to this time mm-hmm. is that our spiritual practice actually changes our physiology in ways that make us more able to be evolutionary catalysts, which is just hugely exciting to me. I mean, it just the, the whole thought of that. It's just like the wonder of that, the awe of that is so tremendous. It's in that ability to have that greater capacity in our brain that we also become more open to new possibilities and realities. I think this is why beginner's mind is found in most wisdom traditions. There's that experience of as you commit to spiritual practice, that it's called sort of an epistemic humility is part of what you experience. Epistemic meaning knowledge. So that acknowledging that we don't know what we don't know. And that puts us in an incredibly creative place. So this is something that's becoming more available to us with every greater commitment to our spiritual practice. The other important is that Dr. Miller talks about is this awakened awareness, where we awaken more to what life is showing us. So instead of having our own preconceived notions of what our spiritual practice should look like, what everything else should look like. It it hooks up our heart and mind in a way that increases that epistemic humility so that we're able to listen more and be aware of the messages that are always available to us through our connection to the unified field. So I feel like this is such a helpful support right now because I think we're in the midst of what I'm calling an evolutionary imperative. This existential crisis that we're in through what's going on with climate and the many other cascading pieces of that are calling us to expand our human potential. And the grief and the anxiety that we all feel when we keep hearing the tipping points that are continually being passed more quickly than was even thought possible. An ice-free Arctic could happen any year now, and the implications of the collapsing Greenland ice cap is, it, it's a big deal. And many parts of the world are already seeing a two-degree rise, and we thought we could keep it to 1.5. Not happening. In fact, southwest Colorado is the largest hotspot. It's already seen that two-degree rise. It's the largest hotspot in the lower 48 states. Really? Yeah. If you look at these maps, you see this big red blob, and it's right there at the four corners. And and you know they've already been um, very warm for some time. So, you know we we think about things and we think from our Newtonian cause and effect conditioning that and and quite frankly <clears throat> we don't know we don't know how that is going to unfold. The thing we don't know the most. I mean, if, we, if we're looking through this purely through that Newtonian lens of the numbers and the trends, it's, it's clear that there's a loss of human habitat that's going to cause our extinction in the near future. But again, it's like that's looking through a filter that we've been conditioned to look through and think about what that means. But we, you know, we've all been hearing a lot about the transition from 3D to 5D and, and just alone that the increase in consciousness and, and awakened awareness around the world. From a place of epistemic humility, we don't know what's possible because of our greater brain and heart functioning, because of our ability to through our own prayer and just our own frequency and vibration, the effect of that on our material world. It's been spoken of a lot that we're moving into a post-materialist reality. And again, it's like we can't really even wrap our heads around what that means. Much like when the quantum physicists started to see the actual reality of the quantum world, many of them had nervous breakdowns and didn't (laughs) want to publish what they were finding because they thought they'd be humiliated and excommunicated from the science world because it was so far outside of what they could imagine and what what science and the growth of scientific method from the Enlightenment till then was telling them. It was so outside that box. So I think what we can take from that is to keep allowing ourselves to be open to what is showing up and to increase our ability to listen through our heart-mind alignment and to trust what may be a very foreign kind of way of approaching what's happening right now. It's getting used to being in a a dynamic communication with reality. Sometimes we think of prayer as this one-way communication. I'd like to have this. I need this. Please make this happen. And we're just throwing out our needs and wants and desires and beautiful visions and and well-intentioned asking but we can forget that it's a conversation and we're getting information back all the time and that's what i think is so where there's so much opportunity right now is getting to trust the messages that we're getting Mm -hmm and being brave enough to act on them and I don't know what that looks like for each of you. I don't even know always what that looks like for me but I think what we're being called to do is is to play with that more, to get some information and act on it and watch and feel what happens in that interchange and to keep honing our trust and our capacity to be in dynamic conversation, being really receptive, being more in a place of receptivity. Something I wanted to share with you is um, some pieces of a essay that I got connected to recently and shared more deeply on the retreat that I recently facilitated. This was written by a couple of bioethicists, so people who like one thing they might do is help first responders understand how to approach the moral and ethical issues they encounter in disaster situations like what happened in Hurricane Katrina when generators went down and this is happening all over the world of course people you know, in the ICUs trapped in hospitals that are losing their power and people are suffering, and what do you do? All of a sudden, you've got to make these life-and-death decisions that you may have never ever encountered or thought you would ever encounter. So in the course of doing their work over the last many years, they've realized there's an importance to doing this kind of inquiry in advance of what we may experience in the next several years through the climate catastrophes that we will be a part of. So I wanted to share just a couple of those. There's, there's six maxims. The first one is to work hard to grasp the immensity, to realize how fiendishly difficult it is to grasp the scope of climate devastation oneself. Realize how hard it is for others Effective strategy, as well as compassion, require carefully assessing the capacity of one's listeners. In keeping with this, these maxims suggest a progression, one step at a time, begin small. Asking people to go beyond their capacity can be cruel and is generally counterproductive. So that's something I find, is that we feel this responsibility to share and to confront our loved ones maybe friends with helping them to get up close to grasping the immensity and i think what this is saying is to is to be aware of somebody else's capacity to take something in and to start in a small way in a compassionate way to prepare like i'm thinking of Janae's work in helping the senior housing units to build a fire evacuation plan. That's something most of us can wrap our heads around. We know there may be fires. We should probably know what to do if something happens. You don't have to get into the whole existential immensity of it. That's a compassionate place to start that gives people something to do, makes them feel empowered, but also prepares them no matter what might cause an evacuation need. So I just thought that was like a beautiful example of starting where people are and meeting them there. The other piece of this I wanted to share was the fifth maxim, which is train your body and your mind. This may seem like a no-brainer. Of course, we're all, as I look around the room, looking like pretty healthy people who have a commitment to keeping themselves strong and keeping your immune systems well-functioning. We're probably all in agreement about the value of training our mind through therapy, through meditation to keep a a certain amount of steadiness in our lives that allows us to be of benefit to ourselves, to our communities, to our loved ones. If we're not taking care of ourselves, not only are we more of a liability than a benefit to the people around us, but it also... Breaks down that ability to be really present in our lives and to build that thicker cortical matter that allows us to be the evolutionary catalyst that I believe we have the potential to be. So it's about constantly being aware of what's getting in my way, what's limiting me, where can I take on a piece of healing, whether physical. Or emotional, psychological? What's an old pattern that I'm aware of that I have that maybe through a little therapy or coaching or a retreat, I can really take that on and try to create more freedom there so I can become that more catalytic force in the ways that I'm called. And this is an important piece Somehow along the way, we've been taught that certain emotions are indicative of um, a successful and steady person, and others are indicative of a more fragile and broken person. And what also emotional research is starting to show us is that there aren't good and bad emotions. What we want to Increase is our ability to feel all of our emotions. When we collapse the lower register of sorrow and grief, we also collapse the upper register of joy and gratitude <laughs> and happiness. So it's not about learning to live in that, you know, narrow, just oh, everything's okay, I'm okay. It's being more accepting of the full range of your emotions and therefore being accepting of others, especially things like despair and grief. If we're not experiencing those things right now, we're probably numbing ourselves, probably too many glasses of wine and Netflix, (laughs) whatever it is that distracts us from our ability to feel. This is something that I'm seeing all over the place right now from thought leaders is not about making ourselves feel better. It's about getting better at feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So don't be afraid of that. Look for opportunities and communities where you can share that full spectrum of, of feeling you know we can do this work by ourselves but it's in doing it in community where the real power is especially the discharge of grief mm-hmm. we cannot get through grief on our own we know that now we can we can hold it we can experience it but we cannot discharge it that' requires a witness. That's why every indigenous culture that we know of has regular grief practice. And we've, that's been sort of stripped out of our culture. And we need to find these more regular opportunities where we can witness each other's full spectrum of emotions. I found some research on how grief alters our heart muscle, It can cause symptoms of heart attack. It can lower our immune function. So grief can do these things. However, when we have a pre-existing amount of resilience in our physiology, through our spiritual practice, through our community practice, we have the ability to withstand what could cause a heart attack And what we now know causes, it's like a greater porousness happens with our heart muscles. They actually become more resilient. What could cause someone a heart attack could cause someone else who's got that pre-existing resilience the ability to become a greater evolutionary catalyst. I had a mentor in my early days of working in the movement and Hunger and Poverty. And we would talk a lot about heartbreak because it was part of our daily experience in supporting others to expand their leadership. And she would always say to me, don't be afraid of your heart breaking. It will always make it stronger. And and now I'm seeing like she was already on to this. She was getting to experience this in people. People who had a strong community where they allowed each other to share their deep sorrow didn't make them circle the drain. It made them actually more resilient, more more ability to actually be up close to the immensity of what was happening and be more powerful leaders because their hearts had somehow had this greater capacity. I was recently reading a book of Elizabeth Gilbert's who wrote Eat, Pray, Love. It was called The Signature of All Things. The piece in the book, the one little piece where she starts to explain the signature of all things, and she's talking about Jacob Bohm, who lived during the Enlightenment was alive at the same time as Anne Hutchinson, but he was in Germany. He believed in something called the signature of all things, namely that God had hidden the clues for humanity's betterment inside the design of every flower, leaf, fruit, and tree on earth. All the natural world was a divine code, Bohm claimed, contained the proof of our creator's love for us. So it's no uh, mystery to me that there's so much more emphasis right now on our relationship to the natural world. And, and why so many people say, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual, and I feel like my church is nature. There's actually some really strong truth to that. And and it's in, again, that increasing our ability to listen and be receptive to what's coming through us, through Gaia, that we'll be able to navigate and maybe find our way to not only what what indigenous peoples felt all the time, that We're not separate. Every rock, tree, critter is all my relations. But it's because of that connection and the dynamic conversation that we're in with it that we're able to navigate our ability to be human in connection with the natural world, not separate from it, not as a backdrop to our workout, not. You know, as something we can manipulate and dominate. But something to be in absolute epistemic humility with and in listening with that will know how to be our true selves. So it's like to stop looking for normal. It's stop looking for some kind of safety and security and certainty. But to open ourselves to more mystery Knowing that we are existing in this reality of love, it's all showing up for us. It's all an opportunity. And in our own generosity toward ourselves and others, our own compassion and our deep connectedness and receptivity to the natural world, we find our way forward to a whole new reality that may include the, the end of our material experience. To not be afraid of that. But to keep, and not to, not to stop serving it. You know, like, oh, I'm not going to plant a garden. This is all an illusion. No, it's not about that. I it mean, like a garden is a beautiful way to be in that dynamic relationship to nature. So it's like to keep doing all that, but knowing and keep releasing what we think is supposed to be happening. Thank you so much for your beautiful words and your amazing heart. (laughs)